Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome retired professor Paul Conant to It's Rainmaking Time. He is the director of the Fluoride Action Network and the lead author in the book The Case Against Fluoride, How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water and the Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that I've been upset about fluoride for many years. I've known that it's been in our water, that this has been approved by the American Dental Association, the California Dental Association, by many agencies. And people have found out that fluoride is dangerous for not only our health, but our children's health. I've called in Paul today to talk about his book, to lay out the details for us, and to also give us the contextual history, which is represented and spoken of in the book in a very detailed manner, why fluoride has been in our water for 60 years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Paul Conant to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. Nice to be here. I tell you, in a way, it's nice to be here with you because of the great work that you're doing. Part of me says it's really not nice to be here about what we're going to talk about. That's right. This, this issue, the fluoridation should never have begun. And once it began, there are many times when it, it should have ended. Uh, it should never have begun because this is a terrible medical practice. To, to use the public water supply to deliver medicine is absolutely a stupid thing to do because once you put the medicine in the water, you can't control the dose because you can't control how much water people drink. You can't control it, who it goes to. It goes to everyone including bottle-fed babies, which I shall talk about more later. And uh, there's no individual supervision by a doctor, and um, it's violating the individual's right to informed consent to medicine. So essentially what you're doing is you're allowing the government, in the case of California, the state government, to do to everyone what an individual doctor can do to no one, to force medicine on them. So it's a bad medical practice, and we've never done it with anything else. No other medicine. This is the only time that we've used the public water supply to deliver medicine, apart from a short experiment with iodine in the 1930s, which was a complete failure because it couldn't control the dose, and some people were overdosed with, with iodine. And as I said, there have been many times now when this practice should have stopped. And, and in most recent times, it was when, in 1999, the Center of Disease Control or I should say the Oral Health Division of the Center of Disease Control. There's a difference here. The Center of Disease Control is a massive federal uh, bureaucracy to protect our health, supposedly. 20,000, 30,000 people down in Atlanta, Georgia. The Oral Health Division is only 30 people, and they're just dentally trained people. And their mission is to promote fluoridation far and wide in the United States and even support mandatory statewide fluoridation. So when you're dealing with the CDC, you're dealing with essentially a lobby for fluoridation. So don't be surprised when they come out with statements like fluoridation is one of the top 10 public health achievements of the 20th century, which is quoted nearly every day somewhere in the world. But in 1999, even this oral health division admitted that they'd got the mechanism of fluoride's benefit wrong for 50 years. For 50 years, they thought that the baby needed fluoride before the teeth had erupted. They even had pediatricians giving fluoride tablets to pregnant women and to uh, babies before their teeth had erupted. And the idea being is that fluoride would build up in the tooth enamel. And so when the teeth eventually erupted in the, in the mouth, they would be less subject to acid attack. Well, the acid, of course, comes from the bacteria rotting down uh, to produce uh, acids the sugar to acids and and that's the start of, of of tooth decay and then in 1999 they said whoops we're wrong the predominant mechanism of fluoride's action is topical it works from the outside of the tooth not from inside the body and at that point it, the penny should have dropped if you use the, a different strategy of encouraging everybody to use fluoridated toothpaste and brush it on the teeth and spit it out. A, you solve the health problems because you're not exposing every tissue in the body to this toxic substance. And there's no argument that fluoride is toxic. 
that you're not exposing every tissue to a toxic substance, and B, you're not exposing people that don't want it. So you solve the ethical problem and the health problem in one strategy. Stop fluoridating the water, and if you still want fluoride, it's out there. The fluoridated toothpaste is universally available. But sadly, the Center of Disease Control did not take that opportunity in 1999, and so we still have them promoting fluoridation, and we still have people suffering from this rather ridiculous practice. Okay, now listen, I've read the case against fluoride from cover right. to cover. It is really a landmark book. It is so detailed in terms of the historical perspective of how fluoride became known, what really was known about it, the harm that it causes. Even in the 1800s, we knew this. I have a couple of detailed questions, actually pages of notes for you. Okay, and I want to let you go to town with it, but I want to just c cut in right here at the beginning. There is no control of who gets it in the dose. We get that. But there's a distinction that you make in the book between a dose and dosage. Explain it, because I think we're all going to hear it the same. And then I want you to explain why infants are not just little adults on an immunity level. Okay. Okay. Well, first, first of all, of course, there are two huge distinctions. One is the difference in concentration and dose. And that's a distinction which they've obfuscated for 60 years, because you'll notice that when the proponents are arguing for fluoridation and they have to deal with all the health studies which show harm, they always say, oh, these are at high concentrations. There's been no studies that show harm at one part per million, as if the concentration was the guiding factor. This is ridiculous. So they dismissed, for example, the whole of the National Research Council report from 2006, which announced that the, the safe drinking water standard of four parts per million was not safe and needed to be lowered by the EPA. And after five years, they haven't done that. But, but, but the response was, oh, well, four parts per million is far much far higher than the one part per million that we have in the water. Well, first, that's nonsense. That means they don't know the difference in concentration and dose because somebody drinking over four liters of water a day, of which there are many, would get more fluoride than somebody drinking um, one liter at four parts per million. So you can't make this comparison based upon on dose, uh, on concentration. You've got to make these comparisons based upon dose, which makes this huge 507-page report from the National Research Council, very important indeed. So now to answer your question. Sorry, I'm a bit long. No, you are answering the question. That's good. Keep going. So the difference between dose and dosage, the difference is key when you're comparing adults with children. Let's, uh, that's the key thing. Um, so what we do, because I think everybody knows that the same dose of aspirin, which might be safe for an adult, is not safe for an infant. You know, if a thousand milligrams of aspirin is safe for an adult, you wouldn't give a thousand milligrams to a baby. So how do toxicologists adjust for this? The answer is they divide by body weight. They divide by the body weight. So once you've determined a safe dose for an adult, you divide by the adult's body weight. And that gives you a safe dosage. So a safe dose would be measured in milligrams per day. A safe dose, which would only apply to adults now, you see, milligrams per day, a safe dose would only apply to adults. And then when you divide by the adult's weight, which is 70 kilograms, you get the dosage, milligrams per kilogram body weight Got per it. day. And that figure you can now apply to infants. You may want an extra safety factor for infants because, as you alluded to, Infant, you can't treat babies as little adults. Their, their, their systems are far, far more vulnerable. And, and in terms of vulnerability, the, the most important fact that I learned 15 years ago when my wife literally forced me to read the literature on this was the level in mother's milk, the level of fluoride in mother's milk. Now, let's step back a second and ask ourselves, what is mother's milk? It's the baby's first meal determined over millions of years of evolution of life through, you know, the sea creatures, through eventually through mammals and eventually through human beings. This is what nature considers to be the best meal for the baby. 
So look at how much fluoride is in this meal. And the answer is, it's incredibly low. It can be as low as 0.004 parts per million. Or to put it another way, if you are bottle feeding a baby in a fluoridated community, you're giving that baby 250 times more fluoride than nature intended. And, or if you like, as a breastfed baby, 250 times more. And when I saw that, I said, this is ridiculous. Don't tell me that the American Dental Association knows more about baby's first meal than evolution. This is, this is ridiculous. Now, obviously, the baby doesn't need fluoride. Otherwise, you're saying that, that nature screwed up here. The baby doesn't need fluoride. And indeed, they've never done a study to demonstrate that fluoride is an essential nutrient. To do that, you've got to starve an animal of fluoride in its diet and show that a disease has developed. They've never done that. There's no disease associated with a lack of fluoride. And you can have perfectly good teeth without fluoride. There's not one single process, biochemical process in the body which requires fluoride in any way, shape or form. So we are on a hiding to nothing. It's not used by the body, and yet we now know it causes harm. And they know it causes harm because, as you probably are aware, on January the 7th, the Center of Disease Control and the EPA admitted that our babies and our children are getting far too much fluoride. In fact, the number is staggering. 41% of children aged 12 to 15 and incidentally, this is an average between children uh, in fluoridated communities and non-fluoridated communities. So the figures are worse for children in fluoridated communities. But right now, for American children, 41% aged 12 to 15 have dental fluorosis, which is an indicator of overexposure to fluoride. It's, it's well known. Of course, they dismiss dental fluorosis as just simply a cosmetic effect, um, but that's you know, that's public relations hype. What it means is the baby has been overexposed to fluoride. And the worst year, the worst year for this exposure is the first year of life. And that's why the American Dental Association advised its members, its dentists, but not the public, that babies shouldn't get fluoridated tap water uh, in bottle. If you're making up baby formula, you shouldn't use fluoridated tap water. But parents are not being warned about that. But of course, I am far more concerned about what the fluoride is doing other tissues in the body, including the brain and the bones, than simply this visible effect, this discoloration and mottling of the enamel called dental fluorosis. I want to talk about what it does in the body, but I want to clarify a few things about a few agencies so we're clear the mandate or what these agencies are supposed to be doing. First, I want to make sure that I'm correct when I say that the EPA has offices of drinking water where it approves contaminants. Is that correct? That's right, yes. The, the EPA deals with contaminants or pollutants in the drinking water. They, their task is to deal with safe levels, safe levels of arsenic, safe levels of lead, safe levels of fluoride, safe levels of any um, toxic substance that might get into the drinking water. They have no brief on additives. So things which are added to the water, like chlorine or fluoride or what have you, they don't regulate the addition. They only set up what they consider to be a safe drinking water standard. And that's when the politics comes in. Because if today they were to determine by their normal methods a safe level for fluoride, it would be lower lower. What do you think it would be, Paul? The one part per million used in, in fluoridation. So uh, you could not, on a scientific level, justify a safe level goal. And there's a difference between a goal and the enforceable standard. You couldn't justify a safe MCLG maximum contaminant level goal greater than 0.1 parts per million if you use the normal procedures that the EPA uses on any other pollutant. But they won't do that, and they announced they won't do that on January the 7th because they want to protect, they say, the children's teeth, or rather they want to protect 
the water fluoridation program. What is the water fluoridation program? Well, that is the deliberate addition of fluoride to the drinking water at a level of one milligram per liter or thereabouts. It ranges from 0.7 to 1.2 um, to the drinking water ostensibly to fight tooth decay. And, and people would be shocked, I think, to find out that the, the chemicals they're using for this purpose, the fluoridated chemical, fluoride chemicals, are not pharmaceutical grade as appears in toothpaste. What are they? Can you name them? Yeah, it's a, it's a hazardous waste from the, the phosphate fertilizer industry. It's either hexafluorosilicic acid or it's sodium salt. And this, this stuff comes from the scrubbing liquor, the wet scrubbers of the phosphate fertilizer industry. And the aim of these wet scrubbers is to remove two very toxic gases, hydrogen fluoride and silicon tetrafluoride, which otherwise would decimate the local environment, cripple cattle. They have to capture these. And the resulting scrubbing liquor after the water has captured these two toxic gases is called hexafluorosilicic acid. It also contains a lot of other impurities, toxic metals, even traces of radioactive isotopes because the same phosphate rock is, is mined for uranium. Now they can't dump this stuff into the sea. The scrubbing liquor can't be dumped into the sea. It can't be dumped locally because it's too concentrated. Now there have been many incidents in, in Florida where it has got into the environment and caused havoc. But one of the vagaries of hazardous waste regulations in the United States is if an industry produces a hazardous waste and someone buys it from them, they've got to buy it. If they buy it from them, it becomes a product. And that's what's happened. This lunacy here is that uh, the public water supply buys this stuff from the phosphate fertilizer industry and puts it in the water. So. It, to add a bizarre level to a bizarre level, not only is we do we have this ridiculous practice of using the public water supply to deliver medicine in this incredibly clumsy fashion, inviting overexposure, but we're also using the public water supply as a vehicle to get rid of, of hazardous waste. As I say, utter lunacy. How is this not obviously criminal? Well, I guess because it's, it's shrouded in good intentions. And it's, it's promoted by people in lovely white coats. If you go back to the 30s, you know, you had advertisements saying 23,000 dentists advised to smoke Viceroy and are not to be outdone. We had about 20,000 doctors who advised to, to smoke a camel cigarettes. So, it, you know, there's a long history of getting people in white coats to endorse things and to make the product lily white and clean. And so this is the way, essentially, in the hands of the public relations maestro of all time, Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who became the father of public relations and the father of propaganda. Uh, one of the, his great claims to fame is that he promoted fluoridation and changed the image of fluoride from one of the nastiest air pollutants an air pollutant had done more damage to agriculture in the 1930s than any other pollutant. A pollutant that was generating more lawsuits than any other air pollutant in the 40s and 50s. And somehow the whole image of this nasty pollutant has changed from that threatening lives and threatening cattle and threatening the environment to a substance that we now put in the drinking water and put into our toothpaste. It was a brilliant uh, maneuver. And it's all documented in a wonderful book by Chris Bryson. And if people don't have time to read the book, they can see a 28-minute interview I have with Chris. It's available online on our website, fluoridealert.org. Go down, you'll find that interview with Chris Bryson. And basically, he demonstrates a collusion between the U.S. Public Health Service and the Florine Lawyers Association. And the Florine Lawyers Association was a obviously law, lawyers, who were set up to help um, companies like Alcoa and uh, the phosphate fertilizer industry, the steel industry, the ceramics and bricks, oil industry. Many industries produce fluoride as a pollutant. And many industries were faced with, with lawsuits. And these lawyers were there to defend their clients. And obviously, they had to uh, promote the idea that fluoride was perfectly safe and was not causing the health problems seen in workers in the industry. 
Um, anyway, that that's that's really, a, I would say, a different story. That history is is very very well documented. The the only issue that Chris does not deal with in his book, and we we allude to it, and that is one year before the U.S. Public Health Service endorsed fluoridation in 1950, which is a crucial year. We we spend two chapters looking at 1950 and all the events surrounding it. But one event was that the sugar lobby representing 130-odd sugar interests, said in its uh, journal, we need to find a way to reduce tooth decay without reducing sugar consumption. Now, that was 1949, and the U.S. Public Health Service endorsed fluoridation in 1950. No one's ever joined the dots between those two events, whether the sugar lobby was actually twisting the arm of the U.S. Public Health Service, we don't know. What we do know is the sugar lobby put a lot of money into nutrition departments at famous universities like Harvard, millions of dollars into the nutrition departments and the scientists. The chairman of the Harvard Nutrition Department is a gentleman called Dr. Frederick Steyer. And he went around the country for many, many years extolling the virtues of fluoridation, how it was good for teeth and good for bones. It was more important for adults than children because it strengthened our bones, according to Frederick Steyer. And he was also telling us that Coca-Cola was a nutritious drink and cookies <laughs> and other things. No, he, no, in testament, in, he was saying things incredible, like this. Incredible. So that twin, the twin pronged approach of sugar is good and fluoridation was good and also started this vitriolic attacks on any scientist. When you see the tracks, you see the verbiage that came out of this man's mouth when flor- people opposed, were opposed to fluoridation. He would attack them unmercifully. And I'm sure the citizens and scientists trembled when he opened his mouth. He was very eloquent, but he was very nasty. And, and this, is, uh, um, this is, ch- hasn't changed for 60 years. There are people out there to this day, people like Michael Easley, people like Stephen Barrett, people like Jason Armfield in Australia, and they just go after opponents. And the object of the exercise, I believe, and this is my opinion, is to keep scientists and to keep doctors and to keep dentists away from the literature. Because if you read the literature, it's obviously unacceptable. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to reduce tooth decay on the one hand, or it's very, very small benefit, if at any. And two, there are serious health questions. And But they've kept the people away from the literature because they're too frightened to deal with this intimidation that takes place when they open their mouths. Um, the dental, the American Dental Association in the past has been very intimidating when doctors and dentists have spoken out against mercury amalgams on the one hand and fluoridation on the other. They, in some cases, dentists have lost their state licenses to practice and that kind of thing. So this, that's what you... People have to understand this. They say, well, you know, most scientists do this. Most scientists believe this. Well, most scientists are not involved. It's only a handful of people in the uh, dental lobby and in the uh, government that are involved in this. Most people, other people have been kept away. That's why this book, in my view, is so important. Um, it took me, you know, it's 15 years of research. I can tell there's 15 years. I have two questions now. Yeah. One the FDA does not do clinical trials about fluoride. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, let's go back a second with three agencies. Okay. Let's deal with three agencies. One, the EPA does not regulate water fluoridation. It only regulates the contaminant levels of fluoride. Um, secondly, the FDA has never regulated fluoride. It's official classification for fluoride, either as a prescription drug over the counter or prescription drug tablets, fluoride tablets and water fluoridation is that it's an unapproved drug. So here we have a medicine, which is the most prescribed medicine in American history, and it's never been regulated by the FDA. And so, um, therefore, there's never been randomized clinical trials that the FDA would normally require for any other drugs. Randomized clinical trials definitely for effectiveness and also for safety. These have never never been done. So again, look at it. EPA is not regulating fluoridation and in fact is destined to protect fluoridation. Uh, FDA has never regulated fluoride for ingestion or water fluoridation. 
and it's left to the CDC. And this is only <laughs> the 30 people called the Oral Health Division who have a mandate to promote fluoridation. And when it comes to health, they, they direct you elsewhere. If you ask the Oral Health Division, well, where, where are your staff? Where are your toxicologists? Where are your doctors? Where are your specialists looking at health effects? They don't have them. They t- they'll send you somewhere else. They'll send you to a review, which is five or 10 years out of date. It's unbelievable. So there's no one regulating this thing in the United States. There's no one actually at the federal level responsible for fluoridation has been outsourced to private entity. If you could explain some of these things to me. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back for just a minute. The National Sanitation Foundation. Yes. 60 years they've been experimenting with fluoride. How do they come into the fold? That was a little confusing for me. Well, we, it was the, if, if you go back to the, it was about 19, the 1980s. I'd have to check the dates. But it basically... About the time that the EPA washed its hands of regulating additives to water, uh, that was the time that they helped to set up this National Sanitation Foundation to be the agency responsible for monitoring the standards or uh, uh, determining the standards and and recommendation for the levels of chemicals used in drinking water. So you have the NSF, ANSI standards for a whole bunch of things that are added to the water, including fluoride. So basically, it was outsourced. The EPA outsourced and the FDA between them, cutting deals between them, uh, outsourced this to the NSF, which is brilliant because now you don't have any federal agency in charge of the toxicology of fluoride or responsible for the toxicology of fluoride or for the chemicals. And in fact, if today a public official was to ask the NSF that's supposed to have the, you know, supposed to be the the final resting place for the safety and accountability on fluoride, and you ask them for the toxicological studies on hexafluorosalicylic acid, they refuse to give it to you because they don't have any. So nobody's home, really. It's called nobody's home, and nobody wants to be home. What is that trick where you have the three shell? It's the most brilliant shell game that's ever gone on with a public health policy. And it's the biggest, in my view, the biggest betrayal of the public's trust imaginable. And and you've got to look at this from three levels, I think, uh, in terms of the betrayal. At the ground level, you've got thousands, millions of doctors and dentists who don't seem to have any hesitation of going out to the public and saying that fluoridation is terrific. However, you will find that most of those people um, have not read the literature because they're so busy uh, treating their patients. It's a very busy job being a doctor or a dentist. So they don't have the, the same time that three professors, retired professors, have had to study the literature. And I, I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is having not studied the literature telling people it's safe. I think that's, that's outrageous. And if for that matter, effective. That's outrageous. But um, uh, it's understandable that, that, that all they're doing, essentially, is passing on secondhand what they were taught at dental school and medical school and what is now reinforced by, you know, repeated... Well, it's brainwashing. Spa- it's basic brainwashing. You say it over and over and over until it's a fact, whether it is or not. Absolutely. So the ADA, the CDC, and, and, their, and their minions is safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. This is the most cost-effective way of treating tooth decay. This is the way of getting equity because it goes to everybody, blah, blah, blah. Who benefits from fluoridating water? Well, okay, first of all, um, uh, and I'm not saying this is the most important, where the sugar industry has definitely benefited from the sidetrack of fluoridation. And, of course, the phosphate fertilizer industry benefits because they're getting rid of the hazardous waste. But I would say the dental uh, research community has benefited. Shortly after the trials of fluoridation began in 1945, this huge building was erected in Bethesda, Maryland, called the National Institute for Dental Research. And so, and this huge research institute was built essentially on the back of 
of fluoridation. The, the fluoridation is the backbone for research on fluoride. And, and, and what it did is it sort of brought dentistry into the mainstream of medicine. It was always the stepchild of medicine teeth. And with this National Institute of Dental Research, which is built in the complex of the National Institutes of Health, suddenly dentistry and teeth are put on a par with all the other organs in the body, from the liver, the, the, um, <laughs> the lungs, the heart, the brain, everything in the bones. It, it, suddenly they're on a par. And they're, they're now got a huge source of research money that they've never had before. And so fluoridation has essentially been the gravy train for dental research, and has also been the backbone of public health dentistry. It's been it's it's absolutely central. So when you threaten fluoridation, you're you're threatening public health dentistry at its heart, at its soul, and that's why they get so emotional and so upset with people. And that's why they attack opponents of fluoridation unmercifully because it's it's really, as I say, hitting them in their heart and and their soul. Without fluoridation, uh, what would dentistry be as in the in the public's image? I mean, I'm not denigrating dentistry. They're very There's important. There's always going to be, though, a need for research. The difficulty is that when associations and institutions are taking money, including academia, from yes. the federal government or the governments, you have a built-in conflict of interest if what they end up finding is different than what the person or the group funding them wants. Absolutely. But the real issue here is when you look at the research, you'll find study after study after study on teeth, 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 but practically no studies are attempting to see if there's a relationship between fluoridation and arthritis, fluoridation and lowered IQ, fluoridation and hyperthyroidism, fluoridation and, and some people are sensitive to it, no, no formal investigations, no monitoring of fluoride levels in the urine, the bone, the plasma. Um, when it comes to the basic science of fluoride toxicology, there's practically nothing. All the money is going on teeth, 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 and teeth, as if a human being was a great big mouse with little <laughs> legs on. I got to tell you something that I think is just an example of what you're saying physically. When I was a young girl, I was a tournament tennis player who started playing at seven. At 12, I was hypothyroid. 12. Oh my now yeah. we're talking because two, three. You drinking a lot of water, tons right? Tons of water, tons of water, and tons of fluoridated water. Yeah, yeah. There because we go. that's what I was told by my dentist. Then that's what quote the knowledge was. It'll help your teeth. It's good for you. The whole bit. So I'm drinking twenty glasses at least, at least a day, and I'm seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, five years of it. Thyroid gone. Yeah, well, this is this is what I mean by the bad science. So we've had this practice for 60 years and there's never been a single study in any fluoridating country looking at a possible relationship between fluoridation and hypothyroidism, even though doctors in the 30s, 40s and 50s in Argentina, France and Germany were giving patients with overactive thyroid glands fluoride tablets to lower the activity of the thyroid gland. Does that mean that fluoride lowers your metabolic rate? Well, this yeah. is what they were. Yes, it would have been for somebody who's hyperthyroid. And there's always been an issue of whether this was just uh, fluoride did this to hyperthyroid patients. Would it lower the activity of a normal person, the thyroid function? Well, you know, we have between 20 and 40 million Americans with hypothyroidism. Why? You know, obviously, there are people who are not getting enough iodine, their borderline iodine intake. Correct. But they're not looking to see if fluoride is playing any role in this. And this is absolutely unscientific and irresponsible. And look at the, the other thing that I'm most concerned about, which may be related to lower thyroid function, and that is the lowering of IQ in children. Talk about that. Okay. We have... The first animal study was done in 1995 by Phyllis Mullenix, and she showed that fluoride interfered with the behavior of rats with a very sophisticated system. And as soon as that was published, she was fired. She was fired from the Forsyth Dental Center and told that her work had, was no longer relevant to, to dentistry. Amazing, but true. 
And um, she predicted in that paper that this might mean a lowering of IQ in children where, where the fluoride was accumulating in the brain, the parts of the brain, and so on. And sure enough, the next year in China, a study came out that fluoride was associated with lowering of IQ, that children with more dental fluorosis had lower IQ, and so on. And then a study the next year, 1996, also showed a lowering of IQ. And now, in total, we've got 24 studies showing this lowering of IQ, most of them from China. Many of them we've translated from the Chinese. We had translated. And also a study from Iran, India, and Mexico, and another study from Mexico implicating a change to a child's mental development. Anyway, the, the, the study... And of course, they use their usual approach. Oh, these are high levels, and you can't trust the Chinese, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the, the study that most intrigued me was the study by Zhang in 2003. And I actually w went to China at the invitation of Zhang. He works for the Center of Disease Control in China. So ironically, the Center of Disease Control in China is trying to get fluoride out of the water, and the Center of Disease Control in the United States is trying to put it in. But anyway... I went to the two villages where Zhang did his study. One village had less than 0.7 parts per million of fluoride in the water, and the other village had between 2.5 and 4.5 parts per million. I looked at those villages. Those villages were, as, as far from an eyeball point of view, identical. The same occupation, rural farmers, the same housing, the same occupation, the same lifestyle, the same schooling. And the only big difference seemed to be this level of fluoride in the water. They, they checked for lead exposure, the same. They checked for iodine intake, the same. And they found a 5 to 10 IQ uh, drop across the age range. And they found a whole shift of the IQ curve over for both males and females. And Zhang estimated that the lowering, the threshold, would be 1.9 parts per million. And this is why I say, and this is a critical statement, there is no margin of safety from known health effects caused by fluoride. There's no adequate margin of safety to protect all our children from these harmful effects. And one of those harmful effects is lowering of IQ. And in fact, a more recent study, a study published a few weeks ago, showed a correlation between the fluoride levels in urine, which brings it closer to the individual exposure, not just a question of living in a village with high fluoride in the water, but actually how much fluoride has got into their body. Doesn't it also concentrate in the liver? No. It, it concentrates in the pineal gland. Pineal gland for sure. But does it also in the liver or no? No, kidney. Kidneys. Kid there you because go. The kidney, the kidney deals with the flow of liquids through the body and has to... Um, the, the, the kidney gets rid of about 50% of the fluoride each day that you take in, but the other 50% or, or up to 50% accumulates in our bones and any calcified tissues like the teeth, the bones, and including the pineal gland. Would you talk about the pineal gland? Because this is of grave concern to many people. I will in a moment, if I may, but sure. let's finish this IQ thing. Because um, if you take that 1.9 parts per million and assume that the kids were drinking one liter of water a day, and we can make other assumptions. It doesn't change the outcome, whether it's 0.5 or 2. But let's say one part per million, because then we have the dose. It's 1.9 milligrams per day is the threshold for lowering IQ. Now, if you're the typical way, the normal way that you extrapolate from a harmful effect in a small study group to extrapolate to a safe level to protect everyone in a community, which takes into account the enormous variation that we have in response to a toxic substance, is to divide by 10. That's called the intra-within-species variation, and it's standard. I taught this to, high, uh, to graduate students, undergraduate students. So you divide by 10. So you divide 1.9 milligrams per day by 10, and therefore the safe dose to protect all American children from, from, um, from lowering of IQ is 0.19 milligrams per day, which is less than one glass of fluoridated water. Therefore, fluoridation should end tomorrow, period. If we had an honest EPA, that's what would happen. But we have politics, the powerful politics 
is operating on the EPA, Water Division, to protect the water fluoridation, not protect our children, period. Take that to the bank. Dr. Jennifer Luke did a major study on the role of fluoride and how it calcifies the pineal gland. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, I'm not sure. No, it's not that the fluoride calcifies the pineal gland. We don't know why the the pineal gland produces these little crystals of calcium hydroxyapatite, the same crystals in teeth and bones. But what Jennifer Luke um, uh, hypothesized is that this little gland would, would accumulate fluoride like crazy. And sure enough, when she analyzed 11 corpses from, from London, she found um, huge amounts of fluoride in these crystals. 9,000 parts per million. On the crystals. And she estimates it in the whole tissue to be about 300 parts per million. It's a very tiny little gland. And this tiny little gland is very important. It produces melatonin, but it only produces melatonin at night. It's, it's sensitive to light. Melatonin is the hormone of darkness, <laughs> but it regulates. It regulates all kinds of biological events from puberty, the age of puberty, through um, jet lag and sleep patterns and aging. It's, it's a huge amount of work being done on the pineal gland. And when Jennifer Luke uh, found that it accumulated there and also did animal studies which showed that it lowered melatonin production and which in turn was consistent with the earlier onset of puberty, which she also observed. This should have triggered massive research in other countries, particularly fluoridating countries. None, not one single fluoridating country has attempted to reproduce her work. Don't you think she was ahead of her time? Oh, absolutely. And don't you think it's also interesting that the pineal gland has magnetite in it, and magnetite seems to be very important for our ability to navigate and our whole experience of being magnetic beings. This is being disrupted as well in the pineal gland. I I didn't know that, but that's very interesting. But Jennifer Luke, one of the things that she did, did, and she said was so important, she said, my study was the first study in which I deliberately tried to mimic the the conditions of bottle feeding. She delivered to these tiny little Mongolian gerbil pups with a little tiny micro pipette. She delivered um, fluoridated water or the control tap water, non-fluoridated water, delivered um, this fluoridated solution to them as if they were being bottle fed rather than nurtured by their their, their mums. So she was mimicking the situation that we now have with with women that are bottle feeding their babies. But, you know, it's incredible. I sent this thesis, I sent this PhD thesis to the EPA and other health agencies in the the United States and to key people. Um, But there's there's never been uh, any kind of scientific response. So this is another case of atrocious science. Uh, They, you know... They're working backwards. The the, the easiest way to understand this is that the water fluoridation program has to be protected for whatever reason. It has to be protected. So when any study that comes up that shows harm, it's a junk study. It's a a junk science. It's Internet or it's something. it's It's a bad study. They don't attempt to reproduce it. They don't exercise their superior knowledge of epidemiology and do their own studies and demonstrate X, Y, and Z. They just are content to destroy the studies. And, if, and the same thing to scientists. If a scientist says they're opposed to fluoridation, they must be a quack. They must be stupid. This has been their strategy. And, and, and the only way that you can understand it is it's become more important in this country and other fluoridating countries, of which, incidentally, there are not many. There's only eight countries that have more than 50% of their population drinking fluoridated water. But in these countries... It's become more important now to protect this practice than to protect the health of our people. Clearly. And also the fact that there is no informed consent on this is beyond me. The other thing is, isn't this a violation of the Nuremberg Code? Oh, yes, absolutely. Explain this to the public. I really think they should hear. 
Well, of course, it, it, you have you hesitate before using this because it's so emotive. We're, we're not accusing dentists or doctors of being Nazis. Okay? No, of course not. But I'm more talking about the practice and the application of fluoridating water. The Nuremberg Code came about because we were horrified that scientists, Nazi scientists during World War II were doing human experiments on people. Um, horrible, horrendous experiments. And out of that experience came the Nuremberg Code, which makes it absolutely clear that if you do an experiment on human beings, you must get their consent. You just can't do it. You, you can't do what Harold Hodge and his colleagues did at the Manhattan Project, which was to inject plutonium into terminal patients without their knowing that they were doing it. And also, of course, the Tuskegee Institute with the, with the mercury and syphilis and so on. Um, you just cannot give medicine to people or do experiments, medical experiments, on people without their informed consent. How come Harold Hodge had the okay to inject plutonium in patients in a hospital without their knowledge? God only knows. I mean, it's just horrendous. It's too horrendous. But the importance of Harold Hodge is he... He was the uh, chairman of the committee that set up the fluoridation trial in Newburgh, Kingston. And all that data was being collected and sent to the Manhattan Project on a daily basis. And what the Manhattan Project, which, of course, used a huge amount of fluoride in developing the atomic bomb, what they were interested in is getting low-dose data on fluoride, just as they were interested in getting low-dose um, data on plutonium, to, to, to be ready if there were any lawsuits for accidents with fluoride or exposure to fluoride from the workers in their program. So, again, it's liabilities that these people seem to have been interested in. What about Judy Cox? You were talking about Harold Hodge. Yeah. But what about the work that he did with Judy Cox in 1950 from the Mellon Institute that the Aluminum Company of America funded? Yeah, Gerald Cox. Well, this you really ought to be talking to Chris Bryson about this because my stuff is secondhand here, but Gerald Cox was a scientist working at the Mellon Institute, which of course is an institute set up by the aluminum industry, um, Alcoa, and basically did research for industry. And of course gave industry the, the right to um, veto whether it was published or not publicly. So the industry, the industry has always been interested in getting more information on any pollutant than any possible lawyer or opponent in a court case would have. They, they need the, the best science they could get. Now, back in the 1930s, um, uh, Cox, Gerald Cox was working on, on um, fluoride. And he was, uh, they, Francis Ferry, who was um, a director of research, I think, for Alcoa, suggested to, to Gerald Cox, he look at the f effect of fluoride on teeth, on teeth. It's interesting, the Alcoa industry in 1930s was interested in teeth. Aluminum, the aluminum. <laughs> yeah, okay. And um, anyway, so Gerald Cox actually was the first person, the first scientist to recommend the artificial fluoridation of drinking water in 1939, long before um, Dean, Trenley Dean of the U.S. Public Health Service recommended fluoride, and he was more cagey about it, in 1942. But that's all documented in chapters 9 and 10 of our book, if anybody's interested in the, in the history. How does WHO, the World Health Organization, connect with the subject of fluoride? What is their position and what are they doing and not doing about it, to your knowledge? Well, heavily, heavily influenced by the U.S. Public Health Service, um, heavily related to the World Dental Federation. The World Dental Federation has been on since the beginning of the last century. is a trade trade body with a lot of industries involved in dental products and so on involved. And they've always had a strong interest in promoting the fluoridation and then more recently fluoridated products. In fact, they got together with the Dental Division of the World Health Organization and the International Association for Dental Research in Geneva in 2006 and said uh, uh, access to fluoride should be considered a basic human right. And you find a very, in all these organizations, you have to make a distinction between the toxicologists, the health experts in those large bodies, 
and the small subset of dental people. And when you get to the small set of dental people, uh, like if you go to the World Health Organization, we're talking about uh, Peterson, who's the head of the oral, oral health director. And, and viewers, listeners can see a small videotape um, of Peterson uh, uh, talking about fluoridation. He's just mouthing the rhetoric from 80s, He's almost reading a script from the ADA. But Peterson goes around, big pal of Professor Michael Lennon, who's the chairman of the British Fluoridation Society. So uh, all of I'm saying is that when you hear statements from the World Health Organization, you have to make a distinction between genuine scientists interested in the environment and interested in health and the subset of people who are essentially a lobby for fluoridation. And in fact, one of the most recent, I think it was 2006, study um, from the World Health Organization, the section on fluoride, there's a whole thing on on water, I think it was on water. And the, the whole section on fluoride was written by four people. And three of those are known lobbyists for, for fluoridation. Um, uh, Omer Lane and Weldon, uh, two dental researchers from the University of Cork in Ireland, and Michael Lennon, the chairman of the British Fluoridation Society. And the fourth one is more objective, I think, called Eklund. And Eklund, in fact, is the guy that found the level of fluoride in mother's milk was so low. But uh, so it's strange that he's in bed with these people. But never mind. Um, the fact is, you, you have to be very, very wary of statements in the World Health Organization. But if you want to take their statement, notice what they say is before a community fluoridates its water, it should take into account all the sources of fluoride in already existing in that community. And. But no community that I'm aware of that's fluoridated its water has set out to determine if the children already have too much fluoride. Is there a way to measure it in the body? You look at the rate of dental fluorosis because they themselves have said that lowering of tooth decay is associated with 10% of the children getting dental fluorosis in its mildest form. And if you were to look at your community and first checked out to see what the frequency, how many kids, what percentage of kids had dental fluorosis in any form. And if you found it was greater than 10%, you would be able to say by their own philosophy and, and belief that those kids are already getting enough fluoride and they shouldn't get any more. What it means is if you, if you take a community that's already over 10% dental fluorosis, you know that by adding fluoride to the water, you're going to get more children with dental fluorosis and, of course, whatever other health problems it generates. And as I go back to the beginning of what I said, 41% of children aged 12 to 15 in America now have dental fluorosis. Now, let's talk about the fact that fluoride is in cereals, in juices, in Coca-Cola, in sodas, in tea, in wine, in beer, in deboned chicken, in fish and seafood, in Teflon pans. In, <laughs> I'm reading from your site. In anesthesia, in cigarettes. It's a wow. Oh, my God. And what about the animals that we're eating that are being given fluoridated water and the vegetables and fruits that are sprayed and living in fluoridated water? I mean, you were really talking about a systemic contaminant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, it divides up into several problems here. One, well, I think they completely underestimated the multiplier effect. Once you put fluoride in the water, then the fluoride is also going to be in all the beverages which are made in the communities with fluoridated water, the beer, the soft drinks, the juices, and so on, wherever you're using water to dilute or prepare any food products, and that water is fluoridated, then it's going to, going to be in those food products. So that's one source of the fluoride. Then we've got a lot of fluoride pesticides like cryolite and sulfuryl fluoride as a fumigant. And these leave residues of fluoride on, on food products. Then we have fluoride in phosphate fertilizer. So that ends up in a lot of uh, food products. Is phosphate fertilizer the only kind of fertilizer that's used in growing most vegetables? Can you explain why that's used and what you suggest? Well, it's, it's one of the synthetic fertilizers that we, we use. We, well, it's not a synthetic. You actually dig it up, okay? You dig it up in Florida, uh, but it contains a lot of fluoride. And, and, but it's a chemical fertilizer, 
you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't get so much of it if you used organic agriculture. So another reason for adding eating organic foods is it's going to be, by and large, less contaminated with fluoride. Unless, of course, those organic farmers are unwittingly using fluoridated tap water to grow their, their crops. Who would know? Them. Who would know? Okay. The other thing is that fluoride also is in products naturally. Tea grows very well in high fluoride areas in India really? and in China. I didn't know and that. So somebody who drinks um, eight or 16 cups of tea a day is going to get a lot of fluoride. And, and it will be, I would say, 16 cups a day, and you're going to be damaging your bones uh, in, in over a lifetime. So be careful. What I advise to people, if you're a tea drinker, uh, maybe adding milk to the tea as the Brits do. And I mean, right now I'm talking New Zealand, with the New Zealand, the Kiwis do. And the I Australian, do too. I do too. Milk. And, and maybe, maybe, although it's not clear, that the calcium in the milk is protecting it slightly against the absorption of the fluoride. You, you just have to hope that that's true. But I advise people to, if they like tea, mix your drinks. You know, have some tea. Have herbal tea and have coffee, water. Really mix your drinks. Don't have just one drink like the Brits. I mean, you have tea at the first thing in the morning. Have tea when you wake up. You have tea at breakfast, <laughs> tea at lunch, tea at lunchtime, tea at tea time, and tea at. I mean, it's it's tea all day long, and that, and and also Peter Mansfield in England is finding very high levels of fluoride in the urine of of people that he's tested in in England, and so. And they're trying to introduce fluoridated water in more places in England. And if you have a lot of tea drinkers, it's the last place that you want to have fluoridation of the water. Because when you fluoridate the water, you're not going to have people drinking less tea necessarily. But you're going to add now, now the tea is being made with tea, which contains fluoride. And then you add the fluoridated water and get more fluoride. What do you think about the filters that are on the market to take the fluoride out? The cheap ones don't, of course. The the carbon filters, the Brita filters, do not remove fluoride. Right, absolutely. Um, and I would advise anybody that gets any, any expensive equipment to pay an extra $25 to a lab and get the fluoride tested from the water to be absolutely sure that the... Oh, I would, when I would buy it, I would make sure from the manufacturer that you can return it if you can demonstrate that it's not removing the fluoride. Uh, so be very careful. Can you tell us where we would go take our water to a lab? Do you recommend some labs we can work with? Any lab should be able to test for fluoride if you ask for it. And I know I don't have the names offhand. That'd be a good it. thing probably to have on your site, too, that people can be. take responsibility for. Yeah, we, we kind of de-emphasize de that, to quite frankly, sure. because we, we would rather have people doing the more fundamental thing of getting fluoride out of their water. And as an interim, uh, making sure that the water departments put a warning on the water bills which says this water is fluoridated do not use to make up baby i formula. think that's the correct thing to do yeah absolutely. i think it would scare the hell out of the public because i well, think it's not a question of scaring the hell out of them it's a question of warning them before their kids develop dental fluorosis that this is a possibility but you know it's a sensible precaution and um and but the ada is fighting like tigers to prevent us introducing legislation to that effect, which is pretty sad since it's their own recommendation. I'm not saying that fluoridation, Kim, is the most important health issue. I think obesity is probably bigger and, and there's some other issues, but it's the easiest issue to end. If you have the political will, you can end fluoridation as quickly as turning off a tap. You turn that spigot off at the waterworks, it's all over. It's over as far as the, the, the major exposure, which is fluoridated tap water. But to get that political will, we need the public informed, and then we need the public organized. Now, in terms of informing the public, you've got our website, fluoridealert.org. You've got now our book, The Case Against Fluoride, and also on our website, which I thoroughly recommend, is a 28-minute videotape called Professional Perspectives on Water Fluoridation. And you'll see myself and 15 other scientists, including a Nobel Prize winner, three authors of the groundbreaking report, the National Research Council report, Fluoride in Drinking Water from 2006, two former scientists from the EPA, one a risk assessment specialist, two dentists who for 25 years promoted fluoridation until they read the literature, Sir Ian Chalmers from England, who's an expert on what constitutes good 
scientific evidence. And the thing that changed him was the fact that tooth decay is coming down as fast in non-fluoridated countries as in fluoridated. And there is no difference, according to the World Health Organization, in tooth decay in 12-year-olds, whether they live in a fluoridated country or a non-fluoridated country. And that's an issue we really haven't talked about, but it's covered in our book, chapters six through eight, which demonstrates that the evidence that fluoride actually works from swallowing from water fluoridation is extremely weak indeed. It's very little. At best, it's a saving of 0.6 of one tooth surface out of 128 tooth surfaces in a child's mouth. So it's a minuscule saving and certainly does not warrant the health risks that I've talked about, well, particularly the brain, but there's also the bone damage, arthritis, hypothyroidism, and all the other things. Where, and we're not saying, as you, if, when you read the book, we're not saying that all these things have categorically been proved, but what we're saying is that the, the studies which have been done, which shows that these things occur at high doses or moderate doses, there's no adequate margin of safety to protect everyone. This is not a practice which should be forced on people. If you can't demonstrate a really strong benefit and there are huge questions about the risks involved, it's not something that should be forced on people. It's arrogance. It's the most arrogant public health policy that's ever, ever been perpetuated on the American public. Bottom line is that fluoridation is approved in each state in the United States and it's separately approved in each country of the world. No. Look, let's just get the numbers right. There are about 30 countries that have some fluoridation. Okay. Um, only only eight have more than 50% of their population drinking fluoridated water. Japan doesn't fluoridate. India doesn't fluoridate. China doesn't fluoridate. And the most of Europe, 98% of Europe does not fluoridate. Yet you can't see a difference in tooth decay. So most people in the world do not drink fluoridated water. Nearly half the people that are drinking fluoridated water live in North America. This is largely an Anglo-American practice. I'm aware that there's a dental crisis and that a lot of this has to do with low-income families. They don't right. have the capital to go to better dentists. Will you explain it? Well, it's, it's really, you know, that one of the most emotive arguments for, for water fluoridation is that it's supposed to help poor kids. And it's absolutely true that um, most of the tooth decay in the United States and other wealthy countries is located in low-income families. But this is a, um, they've got it absolutely backwards because by putting fluoride into low-income, uh, for low-income families' water, they can't afford to avoid it. So you've trapped this subset of the population. Low-income families are trapped. And number two, um, we know that fluoride's toxicity is greatest when you've got poor diet. And you're more likely to find poor diet in low-income families than in, in middle-income families. So you've trapped them, and they're more vulnerable. We also know, incidentally, that uh, uh, communities of color, Afro-Americans and Hispanic children, are more sensitive to dental fluorosis for whatever reason. The dental fluorosis rates amongst black and Hispanic children are greater in the same community as the dental fluorosis in white children. So you've trapped this community and, and, and where that coincides with low income. You've trapped the, those communities and they're more vulnerable. Um, so it's not equitable at all. And yes, we have newspaper report after newspaper report talking about a dental crisis in cities like Pittsburgh and Cleveland and New York City and Boston and uh, other Cincinnati, um, which have been fluoridated for 20 or 30 years. So why are we getting a dental crisis in these cities? And the answer is because tooth decay is in low-income families and fluoridation does not help these low-income families. And in fact, the real problem of tooth decay in low-income families is that 80% of American dentists do not treat children on Medicaid. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's crocodile tears. When they come forward and, and say, we've got to fluoridate to help poor children, well, if you really want to help poor children, then find a way of getting American dentists to treat dental decay in poor children when they've got Medicaid. These are crocodile tears on this on this front. But um, 
What we should be doing is to stop fluoridation and use that money to set up dental clinics in areas of low income and combine the education for a better diet, not only to fight tooth decay, lower sugar, especially, but also to fight obesity. And I then think this investment in dental health and holistic clinics to look after the, the, the physical side of people in poverty uh, would, be, would pay huge dividends. It's going to cost this country billions, if not trillions of dollars in the future, treating the diabetes, which is a, a results from obesity. And diabetes now in teens, uh, teens are getting a type 2 diabetes. This is going to cost the country trillions of dollars over the, the next 20 or 30 years. So it would be well worth our effort to take all that money being squandered on fluoridation chemicals, fluoridation equipment, fluoridation promotion, fluoridation research, and put it into prevention through education, better diet. And if indeed one of the prevention strategies is using fluoridated toothpaste, although I prefer xylitol toothpaste, if that, that was uh, there, then that was where the money should go. Make sure that poor families have free toothbrushes, free toothpaste, uh, but certainly education. We need education, not fluoridation, for the health of our children. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to retired Professor Paul Conant, the leading author of The Case Against Fluoride, How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water, and the Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There, and the director of the Fluoride Action Network. Paul, thank you for your dedication and your many, many years of focus on this subject. Thanks, Kim. Uh, it was very nice being on your program. It's, uh, it's a delight being interviewed by someone who's actually read the book. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for all of your hard work. You bet. Bye-bye.